I'll do everything today, how's that? <laughs> All right. Well, we are in the ninth chapter of the book of Romans. So if you would take your Bibles, if you have a Bible with you, or you can watch up on the line there. Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18. Um, we have been studying this for the past week um, in our devotionals, and so it should be familiar to many of you. Would you stand as we read God's holy word? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. May God speak to us through his word. Please be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a delight it is to be in the house of the Lord together with the people of God, celebrating your great name. We come to a passage of, of scripture like this one, and it is definitely one of those hard passages, hard sayings, that we find in the Bible. And we would ask you, O oh God, to open up our hearts and our minds today that we might understand what it is that you have to say to us, that our spirits might be enriched by the Holy Spirit, that you, O oh Spirit of God, might convince us of the great truths that are found in this chapter. And not only for the sake of this moment, but for all of eternity. That we might rest in confident assurance as those who by faith have trusted in Jesus Christ because you have awakened in us new life. That we might rest in that confidence, knowing that nothing can take us out of your love. That, that love that you set on us before the foundation of the world was even set in place. Before we were born, you set your love on us. A love that is unshakable, a love that is eternal. And a love that is as a father cares for his children, having adopted us into your family, so that we might grow in the likeness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ day by day, transformed and changed, moment by moment, by your Holy Spirit. And not only us, as the scripture says, but, but throughout the whole world, that salvation that is full and free in Jesus Christ, that it might spread to every nation and every people and every tongue. Give us boldness, as David said earlier in his prayer, the boldness to be able to proclaim the good news of the gospel and a conviction that it is a power, the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, that it is a transforming power, it is an awesome and great power, that it can take 
dead people and make them live, blind people and make them see, deaf people make them hear. And so we ask you to do that today by the quickening power of your word through the Holy Spirit, applying the work of Jesus Christ. And do it for the glory of God. And Father, we, uh, we do pray for this nation. We know that, uh, that no nation in this world is a nation that's truly under God. We do not live in a theocracy. But we also know, Lord God, for the many years of this nation, our laws have been based upon Judeo-Christian principles. And we see those being eroded day after day, week after week. We call upon you, O God, to have mercy upon us. For you rightfully should destroy us as you uh, did Israel, as you did Judah, as you have many other nations throughout the world since the beginning of time. We do not rightly deserve your mercy, but rather your wrath. But we ask you, O God, to be merciful, to show your compassion upon us, to pour out your spirit on this uh, nation and the people of this nation, that many might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and be set free from the lies of the enemy who is a deceiver, a liar from the beginning. We would ask you that you would stimulate through the, the preaching of the gospel, stimulate the hearts and minds of the people of the United States of America, that some, that many, might be brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and that this nation might turn person after person, state after state, to the God who is the one and only God, the creator and the redeemer. We ask you to do this for your glory, for your praise, because you alone are God. It's in his, the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. All week long in our devotionals, we have been uh, studying this passage and reading that opening question that we have at this, uh, the beginning of this uh, text. Is there injustice on God's part? Is there injustice? Two of the devotionals this week address that very question. Is God unjust? And the reason that that question is both in the text and that we are studying it is because of the statement that comes in the verse right before it. Jacob have I loved, but Esau, I hate it. Jacob I loved, Esau, I hate it. And the scripture tells us that that happened before they were even born before they had done anything good or bad. Many Christians struggle with this doctrine that we have been talking about for the past several weeks, the doctrine of unconditional election. 
how does this fit with God's character and nature? Uh, Sean preached last week a, an excellent message that explained this concept of unconditional election. But how can God be just if he saves some people and not others with no consideration of their actions or their thoughts? That question of of God's justice, though, is really seldom thought out. I mean, if, if we looked at the Scripture and we went through from the beginning to the end of Scripture, we would be asking that question all the time. For instance, was it just, was it right, for God to only save Noah and the ape with him on the ark, along with a few animals, and not save any of the rest of the people or animals, destroying them all during the time of the flood? How fair was it that God revealed himself to one small nation, the nation of Israel, and not to all the rest of the nations of the world at that time. During the Old Testament, only the Jews, and maybe a few of the people of the Middle East countries even heard about Yahweh. But the people in China, Russia, the people of Europe, South Sahara, Africa, North and South America, They never got to hear. They didn't get that message. Was that just? Was that fair? Or why did God spare Nineveh? One time. By sending Jonah. But didn't spare Nineveh any other times, in any other centuries, nor any of the rest of the cities of the world. Jesus spoke of the cities of Judah. He said if the miracles that were done amongst them had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, then the people in Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented in dust and ashes. Then why didn't God do those miracles in Sodom and Gomorrah so that they would repent in dust and ashes? Was it fair that God knocked down a guy named Saul took him down and said, is it a little tough to kick against the pricks there, isn't it, Saul? But he didn't do that to any of the rest of the Jewish leaders who were just as hard-hearted as Saul was. God called Abram out of the city of Ur and left all the rest of the people of Ur without a witness. Is that just? Is that fair? Is that right? Jesus healed just one lame man at the pool of Bethesda. There were people lying all around there that were sick, and Jesus healed one and then walked away. Is that just? Is that fair? In this chapter that we're studying, and throughout the rest of Scripture, God provides answers to those very questions. We've been seeking to point those answers out in our devotionals over the uh, past few weeks. However, you will never understand those answers unless you understand this one foundational truth 
that is found in this particular passage that we're looking at today that deals with unconditional election for it rests on one simple truth that is the theme of our passage today. God alone is perfectly free to act as he chooses. God alone is perfectly free to act as he chooses. Nothing and nobody else is. God alone is the creator. God alone is self-existent. He depends upon nobody and nothing for his existence. We all depend upon him for our existence. Everyone and everything else is created. Therefore, only God freely works with no influence upon him from anyone or anything else. Now last week, Sean used an acrostic, the word grace, as his way of presenting the doctrine of unconditional election. He said that this truth is grounded in Scripture, that it is radical because of the Savior who presents the attributes of God as he calls us in that election, and it is not ethnically based. This morning, I want to use the other side of the coin. The flip side of the coin of grace is mercy. God's grace and God's mercy. God made it clear in this text when he said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. So let's view the doctrine of unconditional election from the perspective of mercy today. And we begin with that letter M. God's free choice in election is a mystery. How many of you know the mind of God? How many of you think that you're smart enough to figure out the mind of God? 17 times in his 13 epistles, the Apostle Paul uses the word mystery to describe the things about God and about salvation. Mystery, as it's used in the Bible, means something that God knows, but he keeps it hidden until he wants to reveal it at a particular moment in time. So God knows it, but nobody else knows it because he's kept it hidden until that time when he's ready to reveal it. That's a mystery. Paul defines that for us in a variety of different ways. For instance, Paul tells us that God's plan to reach the Gentiles was a mystery hidden from the beginning of time. 1 Timothy 3, he calls the coming of the Son of God in flesh as the mystery of godliness. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says that the second coming of Jesus is a mystery that is yet to be revealed. And this doctrine of unconditional election, it definitely is a mystery. Look at verse 14. 
It says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. You know, why has Paul asked that question? He asked that question because you and I, we do not have an infinite ability to understand the things of God. We have a limited intellect. And so when we are discussing this issue of election, then our brains kind of struggle with that. It is, to us, a mystery. For many, the idea that God would choose individuals for salvation from eternity past without considering what they had or what they would do, it's incredible. How could he do that? And I just raised a number of questions at the beginning of this sermon. For others, the question rears up, why doesn't he save them all? Julius talked about that earlier in the Sunday school class today. Surely, if he can save some unconditionally, then couldn't he save all unconditionally? For some reason, our little itty-bitty brains have a hard time grasping the immensity of God's mind. As a result, many people reject unconditional election as being unjust. There must be an injustice in God or we must be misunderstanding it. God must have something else and we've just misinterpreted it. But how do you explain this mystery? We need to begin by letting God be God. God is God and you are not. We've been saying that throughout the book of Romans so far. God alone is creator and God alone is redeemer. And you and I are not. God alone has pure freedom of choice. You and I do not. God is omniscient. God is omnipotent. You and I are not. He alone can make perfect decisions and then back up those perfect decisions by the might of his power. You and I cannot. God's ways are often mysterious. The Apostle Paul declares that. In Ephesians chapter 3, he says, the, the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. In other words, what Paul is saying there is that God's plan of salvation, his plan of redemption, his plan of election, that those are all hidden in God as a mystery from his point of creation. That is, God, creator, he determined what was going to happen in his creation. You and I do not. Unconditional election is a mystery hidden in the immensity of God before he created the world. Throughout the scriptures and in human history, this doctrine of unconditional election is made clear. Again, think your way through the whole of Scripture. God chose Noah and no one else. God chose Abraham and no one else from his community. He chose Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Moses over Pharaoh. He chose Joshua and Caleb 
And all the rest of the Israelites died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. He chose David and not his six older brothers. He chose Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so many others in the Old Testament and didn't choose others. He chose John the Baptist out of all the children that could be born. John the Baptist, Peter, James, John, the rest of the 12. He also chose Saul of Tarsus, John Mark, and Luke. He chose them for his purpose. And what did he base his choice on? In many cases, we are told that that choice was made before they were even born. Therefore, the mystery of God's unconditional election is revealed in God's free choice as an evidence. The evidence of God's sovereignty. The biblical evidence reveals that God acted out of his sovereign will and his free will. Nothing else affected God's choice. His decision came from his mind and his heart and his love and that alone. No one else and nothing else affected it. So let's think this through logically. Of all the people that I listed, which of those individuals chose God first? Which of those individuals chose God and then decided what kind of ministry that they were going to do for God? Not one of them. Not one of them. Was it Noah? The Bible says that Noah was a wicked man. Genesis 6, verse 5. But the hearts of every man were wicked continually. And then he proved it when he got drunk and lay naked after the flood. But maybe David. Doesn't the Bible say that when he was selecting David, that he looks at the heart, not on the outside? And doesn't the scripture say that David was a man after God's own heart? So therefore, it must mean that God chose David because he knew his heart. Well, let's think about that. David was a polygamist and a murderer. He was a hothead and an adulterer. He was a prideful king. And need I go on? You see, the, the reality is, when we look at every one of those individuals, there was great sin in their hearts. John Mark, a quitter, Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor. No wonder Paul writes then, in verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You see, it's God. God had mercy. God gave them what they did not deserve in grace. Sean shared that last week. But he also did not give them what they do deserve, and that is eternal damnation. That's mercy. A choice that God made on his own without any influence from anyone or anything. God chose them. 
Then God equipped them, and then he sent them on to do the ministry. And he's done that for every single person that he's ever elected from before time began. Paul has spent eight chapters teaching us doctrine. He has walked us through the whole concept of why it is that God had to bring about salvation the way that he did. Every truth about humanity and then about God is opened up for us in those first eight chapters. But let's go back to chapter 3. In chapter 3, verses 10 to 18, we read this. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the explanation of every single human being who has ever walked the face of this earth except Jesus Christ and Adam and Eve before the fall. That is God's definition of humanity. Of your children that were sitting up here in this front row just a few minutes ago. That's God's definition of them. That's God's definition of every person that you know or ever will know. How can that kind of a person then be saved? They're not going to seek God. They're not interested in the eternal things of God. So if they're not going to seek God, then they can't be saved. If there is no righteousness in them, not even one smidgen of righteousness, that text says, then God's not going to look at them and go, oh, oh, I think they're good enough to save. And there's no fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. You don't have the fear of God, then you have no wisdom. And if you have no wisdom, then you will never believe. You'll never come to faith. Do you really think that you're saved because of something that you did? Don't believe in election because I tell you that it's true. And don't believe in election because Elder Sean preached on it last week. Examine the evidence. What do we see from the beginning to the end of Scripture? We never see someone that has goodness in them that God then goes, oh, I like that person. Let me save him or her. Every passage of Scripture denies that. Personal experience, your personal experience denies it. The evidence for divine sovereignty as a basis for election is absolutely true, incontrovertible. Nobody can say that there has ever been one person 
who has been saved because they were good. Because God thought that there was something in them other than what God put in them for his glory and for his praise. But there is another reason. Another reason why some people do not accept the concept of unconditional election. It is because they have come to believe that Jesus died for me. Well, not just for me, but each person pointing to themselves and saying, Jesus died for me. Remember the song, Above All? Right? It's a powerful song. A lot of great truth in it until you come to the end of the chorus. And the last line of the chorus goes, like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. That statement actually borders on heresy. It's not heresy, but it, it, it's close. Because it makes me the center of everything. You see, that song goes through all the things that God is above. God is over this, he's over this, he's over this, he's got more power than that, he's all this kind of stuff, but I'm above that. No, my friends. Instead, you and I need to notice that God's free choice is a revelation. It is a revelation of God's sovereignty and his glory. God's free choice reveals that God is sovereign and that God is glorious. Jesus Christ did not think of you while he hung on that cross above all. Oh, he thought of you. I'm not saying that he didn't think of you. But he did not think of you above all. See, Jesus defines why he went to the cross. Do you know that Jesus doesn't say, I went to the cross because you guys are so great. I wanted to die for you. Oh, he does say that he came into the world to save you know, sinful people. Yes. But what does he say is the reason that he went to the cross? He tells us in multiple places. Jesus tells us that he came into this world to do God's will. That's it. I have come to do your will, O God. And then in John 17, he says, I have come so that you might be glorified. You see, that's why Jesus Christ came. Now, you and I get the benefit of that. You and I, we get, we get to have eternal life as a result of that. For God's glory, though, so that God is seen to be all-glorious. You'll never comprehend the wonder of divine election unless you understand that unconditional election is based on God's free choice as a revelation of his glory. And that's exactly what we find in our text. As Moses and Pharaoh are interacting in verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name 
The Bible often exchanges the word glory for name. My glory, my name, okay, might be proclaimed in all the earth. The elect receive mercy from God for God's glory. And the condemned are condemned for God's glory. The Bible is not about you, it's not about me, it's not about Adam, it's not about Abraham or Moses or David. When we study the word of truth, our focus should not remain on Esther or Ruth or Rahab or Mary. The Bible, from start to finish, is about God, for God's glory. Jesus himself tells us that the Bible is not about him. We often hear that, don't we? That the the, the whole story of the Bible is is that red line that flows through about Jesus Christ. But you know, in 1 Corinthians 15, the scripture says that the the Son of God, that, that Christ, that everything in the whole of the universe is brought underneath him so that he can turn it over to God. For God's glory. You see, the Bible is about God and His glory. And the means by which He reveals His glory is Jesus Christ. Therefore, God freely chooses whom He will save and whom He will harden. And He does so for His glory. And any other interpretation of the Scripture turns the Bible upside down, turns it on its head, making humans the center of salvation rather than God who saves or condemns. When I was teaching at New York School of the Bible for many years, and I would teach the the course on how to study the Bible, one of the first questions that I would ask people is, What is the main theme of Scripture? And I would get all kinds of answers. God's love, uh, redemption, uh, Jesus Christ, and all those kind of things. In the 22 or 23 years that I taught there, never once was I given the right answer. What is the main theme of Scripture? The glory of God. You see, if if the main theme of Scripture is salvation, then why is there far more in the Bible about condemnation than there is about salvation? Look at all the destruction that goes on through the Scripture. People condemned, cities destroyed, countries decimated. You see, The Bible is about God's glory. He gets glory in everything, both in salvation and in condemnation. We'll talk more about that uh, next week. But I want you to notice that the balance to God's sovereignty that we have just made is God's compassion. For our text reveals that God's free choice is from compassion. The Bible teaches that God takes no joy in the death of the wicked. God will have no compunction in condemning people to hell. 
He won't waste a moment of, of tears in saying, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. But that doesn't mean he takes joy in it. You see, the Bible tells us that God takes joy in salvation. He takes joy, you know, in, in, in what Christ accomplished in our redemption. Jesus hanging on the cross, the scripture says, that, he, that, that he's hung on the cross for the joy that was set before him. That is our salvation. God will condemn, and he will not worry, and he will not moan and groan over that condemnation. But the basis of his saving grace is God's compassion. We glimpse the beauty of this in verse 15, where he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. You see, the, the hardest part of, of convincing people of the doctrine of unconditional election is helping people understand how bad sin really is. Sin reeks like a dead skunk in the middle of the road. For God to forgive sinners is almost unthinkable. Anyone who's ever run over a skunk, anybody ever done that? <laughs> All right. Anyone who has ever run over a skunk knows how hard it is to get that smell out of your car. The stench, though, of sin is infinitely worse in the nostrils of a holy and pure God than that. Human nature tends to treat sin as a bad thing, but easily remedied. Not at all. It took the eternal Son of God humbling himself, becoming a human being, Going through this life, abandoned eventually, and then crucified in order that your sin, my sin, might be dealt with. Every time you sin, it's as if you took a bath in a skunk smell. In order to rid you of that stench, you have to be washed over and over again in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Do you understand, though, what it means then for the scripture to say that God has compassion on you or me? Can you grasp the immense power and compassion that it takes to save just one soul? But amazingly, God has chosen to save many. to extend his mercy in compassion. God has also chosen to destroy some in the eternal fires of hell. Because no one deserves mercy. No one is good. We all deserve damnation. So I want you to finally notice how God's free choice is for you. It's for you. Look around you.
You are here in this church today because God brought you here. Whether it's online or whether you are physically present. And the reason that you stayed and the reason that you listened through this sermon is because God wanted you to hear this message today. He wanted you to hear the truth about his character and about his nature. He wanted you to hear about both his justice in terms of condemnation and his compassion in terms of salvation. You heard the scripture read and the songs that were sung And you didn't turn off the message, but you listened. That means that God is offering you the opportunity today to know him, to experience that salvation that he is offering. He's extending out his mercy and compassion to you today. On that day of judgment, when you stand before him, if you do not heed his call, and you do not turn to him, you will not be able to say, I didn't believe because you didn't call me, because you didn't choose me, because you didn't elect me. No. You didn't believe. You didn't accept God's offer that he's giving you today. Verse 18 states, so then he has mercy on whom Ever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. But how does he harden a heart? How does God harden anyone's heart? Well, I'll tell you how. We learn it from Pharaoh. He hardens a heart by showing mercy. What did God do to Pharaoh? Pharaoh believed he was God. And Pharaoh's people believed that all those Various gods, the god of the Nile, the god of the frogs, the god of, you know, all those things. That those, those were all gods. And so what, god, what did God do to Pharaoh? He said, no, they're not. Here, let me show you. I'm in charge of this, I'm in charge of this, I'm in charge of this, I'm in charge of that. Pharaoh, you're not God, I'm God. That's an act of mercy. But Pharaoh's heart got harder with each of those things that God did. Why? Because he is stubborn, because he would not seek God, because he did not choose to believe God. Even Pharaoh's magicians said to him, that's a real God, Pharaoh, these are not tricks. He chose to reject. See, that's how your heart is hardened. Every time you say no to God, your heart gets a little harder. Every time you turn away from his offer of salvation, your heart gets harder. Are you going to turn away today? Harden your heart a little bit more? Or will you believe? You cry out to God and ask him for life eternal. In conclusion, are you willing to let God be God? Are you willing to accept the fact that God alone is God and there is no other? 
that he, as creator, has the right to determine all things. But God, in his godness, decided to have compassion on some. And he offers to all the opportunity to come. And everyone rejects him. Everyone turns away. Everyone hardens their heart. And if he didn't show mercy and compassion on some, none would be saved. That's the message that we have in this passage today. Therefore, God is just. Then destroying those who in their rebellion thumbed their nose at him and said, I am God and you are not. And he rightfully will destroy them But out of his mercy and for his glory, he will show that his power is stronger than the smell of a skunk. And he will cleanse some for his name's sake, for his glory. So have you grasped today the righteousness of God's justice? And if you have not yet done so, will you receive his mercy and trust in him? Let's pray. Father, speak to our hearts today. Apart from your mercy, none of us would believe. We would harden our hearts just as hard as Pharaoh did his. No matter what you've done or what you would do, we would continue to rebel and to reject you. We continue to turn away. And we continue to say, I'm God and you are not. Oh God, be merciful today. Change hearts, open eyes, unstop ears, and awaken faith that some might believe. And for those who have believed, let them rejoice in this great truth that God is a God of compassion who shows mercy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we sing the last song.